by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Moody's Talks, focus on finance. In today's episode, from London, my co-host Miles Nelligan will speak with analysts Vanessa Robert in Paris and Marina Cremonese in London about changes to money market fund regulation. Now, just to say this straight out, money market funds aren't usually exciting. Money market funds are not supposed to be exciting. Starting from when the first one launched in the U.S. in the 1970s, They were meant to be like bank deposits, a place for corporations and individuals to park cash and earn a little interest and be able to withdraw that at whim without losing value. But there's a problem. The short-term corporate debt that some money market funds invest in can lose value, and the funds do what's called breaking the buck, meaning investors don't get back the full amount they invested, as global markets were painfully reminded back in 2008. As we all know, during the financial crisis, a single money market fund known as the Reserve Primary Fund broke the buck, triggering a run not only on that fund, but on funds across the market. Within a matter of days, investors had withdrawn about $300 billion from prime money market funds, or 14% of those funds' assets. That was Mary Shapiro, former chair of the SEC, as recorded by C-SPAN, speaking to Congress in 2012 about the systemic risks posed by money market funds. After that first shock, she described, corporations which rely on money market funds to buy their commercial paper suddenly couldn't roll over their debt. That sent prices for commercial paper and money market fund shares even lower until the U.S. Treasury Department stepped in to guarantee more than $3 trillion in money market fund shares and stopped the downward spiral. It worked, but it put U.S. taxpayers on the hook for money market fund losses. As Mary Shapiro also highlighted in her testimony, it woke everyone up to the notion that money market funds should have had more safeguards. In the wake of the financial crisis, many have rightfully asked, where were the regulators and why didn't they do more to address systemic risks? The regulators did step in afterward and made changes to money market funds to prevent a run like the one in 2008. But last year, with turmoil around the coronavirus pandemic, Money market funds again saw massive withdrawals, triggering renewed alarm bells about systemic risk and requiring some central bank intervention. So joining us now is my co-host, Miles Nelligan. Miles, that gets to the report you'll be discussing with Marina and Vanessa. That's right, Danielle. Uh, They've just published a report looking at how regulators in the US and in Europe are once again reviewing the rules around money market funds in response to last year's events. This is because it turns out that some of the post-financial crisis changes may actually have exacerbated the run on money market funds in March 2020. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. But first, I'm here with Svetlana Pavlova of the banking team in Moscow to talk about social and demographic trends that are posing risks to banks in the Commonwealth of Independent States, or the CIS, a group of 12 states including Russia, Belarus, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Svetlana, welcome to Focus on Finance. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So, Svetlana, your report talks about the social and demographic risks faced by banks in the CIS countries, risks that are higher in this area of the world than in some other areas. 
And I'm especially interested in three types of risk you talk about. One, the risks of internal and external conflicts in the region, including military conflicts, but also civil unrest. Second, aging populations in three countries, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is not formally part of the CIS, but you've included it because of its historical ties to the region. Uh, and what those aging populations mean for banks' profitability and funding. And third, the fact that state-owned banks tend to prioritize social policy over profitability and asset quality. So starting with internal and external conflicts, and especially with tensions having recently been higher along Ukraine's southeast border, given an increase in Russian troops there in recent months, how are internal and external conflicts a problem for banks in CIS countries? Meaning, through what channels do these kinds of conflicts end up affecting bank credit? Thanks, Daniel. This is a very good question. Usually, the primary channel through which uh, conflicts affect banks is uh, depositor confidence. And uh, one striking example of that was uh, the situation in Belarus last year. As you may recall, uh, last year, the election results in the country gave rise to widespread social unrest. And bank depositors reacted very promptly by running to the banks and uh, taking their money out. And in particular, this trend affected the foreign currency-denominated accounts. Uh, this is because uh, the depositors perceived the political turmoil as being a threat uh, not only to banks' solvency in general, but also and particularly to their foreign currency liquidity. And uh, uh, as a result, the Belarusian banks lost as much as 17% of the retail uh, foreign currency-denominated deposits over just three months. But then the social unrest subsided and uh, the deposit outflows subsided as well. And another even more dramatic example is Ukraine, which faced an even deeper and more dramatic conflict back in 2014 and 15. As you may remember, back then geopolitical tensions with Russia resulted in Ukraine losing some territory, in particular the Crimea, and it also effectively lost control over two other breakaway regions. And clearly, uh, the consequences of this were quite severe for the banks. Not only did they face problems with uh, depositor confidence, but uh, more importantly, they also faced an asset quality crisis. And uh, problem loans, in fact, doubled between 2013 and 15. And uh, clearly, a large portion of that growth was uh, attributed to borrowers in the breakaway regions. Okay, so yes, that those are those are quite stark examples of of this kind of conflicts and what they can do to bank credit. Now, turning to the social risk, the second social risk you mentioned, this is actually demographic risk or the fact that working age populations are shrinking in three CIS countries, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, because the populations are aging. So, how does this affect banks' profitability and funding? Well, uh, clearly the consequences of the aging populations in terms of profitability and funding uh, are negative, and there are three mechanisms at work here. First of all, working age adults are the core customers uh, for some of the bank's most profitable products, uh, in particular consumer loans. And as uh, the working age population shrinks, uh, so does the demand for consumer loans. And uh, as a result, the competition among the banks uh, for this uh, shrinking pool of attractive customers intensifies, and this hurts both the net interest margins and the fee income of the banks. And secondly, the decline in working age populations also has a broader impact on the economy as a whole. 
economic growth slows down, the corporates have fewer investment projects to finance, and uh, their loan demand weakens. And therefore, the corporate lending segment becomes more competitive and less profitable for the banks, just as well as the retail segment. And finally, uh, population aging also has a negative impact on the bank's funding. And this is because retirees not only tend to save less, but they also tend to draw down on their bank deposits as they seek to complement uh, their pension benefits. And uh, therefore, uh, with population aging, household savings tend to, de to decrease. And uh, in fact, these savings are uh, quite a, an important source of funding for banks in uh, the three countries we are talking about, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, as uh, they contribute between 30 and 42 percent of the bank's total liabilities in each of the countries. Okay, thanks. And lastly, what about state-owned banks and government policy? This one really interested me. The fact that state-owned banks tend to follow state directives for social policy, which I guess makes sense since they're state-owned, but often this becomes more important to them than asset quality or profitability, things we normally expect banks to care a lot about. How have you seen this in the region and is it changing at all, do you think, or is this likely to always be a risk? The dominance of state-owned banks is one of the characteristic features of our region. Many banking markets in the CIS are dominated by state-owned uh, banks. But to be fair, not all of these banks engage in a lot of state-directed lending. For instance, in Russia, the largest state-owned banks today operate just like commercial banks as profit maximizers. So two countries where we still see a lot of state-directed lending are Belarus and Uzbekistan. Again, to be fair, things are slowly changing there as well. Both countries have reform agendas, which feature a gradual phase-out of state-directed lending, or at least uh, they feature uh, shifting its burden away from commercial state-owned banks to development banks, government funds, and uh, other similar institutions. However, in Uzbekistan, this reform is still at an early stage. And in Belarus, it was effectively reversed last year when the coronavirus-induced crisis gave a big boost to directed lending once again. Svetlana, thanks so much for joining us. Turning now to my co-host, Miles Nelligan, who will talk to Vanessa Robert in Paris and Marina Cremonese in London about regulatory changes for money market funds. Miles, over to you. Thanks very much, Danielle, and a big welcome to Vanessa and Marina. Hi, Miles. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, your report looks at how money market funds are facing another round of regulatory reform. This comes just a few short years after the authorities last tightened the rules to prevent a repeat of the turmoil that the sector experienced in the 2008 crisis. Why? Well, because the previous round of regulatory change appears to have done little to protect money market funds from a further wave of client withdrawals and liquidity shortages in March last year, at the start of the coronavirus crisis. Vanessa, could you tell us where exactly the new regulations are going to take effect and over what time frame? Well, regulators, both in the US and in the European Union, published proposed changes earlier this year, but at this stage, we don't expect the new rules to take effect in either jurisdiction until 2022 at the earliest. Now, the last round of regulatory change uh, took place fairly recently uh, in uh, 2016 in the US and two years later in the EU. Focusing first on the US, could you tell us how the rules there changed in 2016 and why was there nonetheless uh, a further round of client redemptions and liquidity shortages last year? 
Let's look at the facts. What happened in the US is that prime money market funds, which invest mostly in short-term bank debt, suffered greater disruption during the 2008 and March 2020 crisis than government money market funds, which invest in short-term US government securities. Now, if we look at the 2016 reform in the US, one of the key regulatory changes introduced back then was to allow prime money market funds to restrict withdrawals if their liquid assets, those maturing within a week, fall to below 30% of their total assets. The goal here was to protect money market fund liquidity and reduce the risk of investor flight, which put the sector under severe pressure in 2008. However, it looks like this safeguard may in fact have exacerbated the run on prime money market funds in March last year. This is because the potential imposition of fees and gates, in other words, the threat of restrictions once liquid assets fall below particular threshold, in effect, creates an incentive for investors to preemptively redeem their cash as soon as liquidity starts to deteriorate. Right, so some of the fixes designed to make US funds safer actually could have made the situation worse once investors sensed that there was a market crisis brewing. Yes, that's absolutely right, Miles. There is evidence also that the negative consequences of breaching the liquidity threshold encouraged money market funds to preserve their liquid assets. How? Well, by selling longer dated securities. And this contributed to market-wide liquidity shortages. So Vanessa, what proposals are on the table to prevent or reduce preemptive redemptions in future? Well, um, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, published a list of 10 proposals back in February. One of these is to delink liquidity breaches from withdrawal restrictions. But let's be clear, this would not protect money market funds from investor flight. However, the advantage of this proposal would be to reduce the threat of restrictions when liquidity falls below a certain threshold. So this would uh, limit preemptive withdrawals when liquidity starts to decline. And this would also permit funds to use some of their liquid assets to meet redemptions without the fear of fees and gates. So that might go some way towards solving the problem. What about the SEC's other nine proposals? Well, we think that some of the remaining proposals run the risk of making prime funds unattractive either to their sponsor or their investors. They include, for example, a requirement that prime money market funds build up a capital buffer to absorb losses in times of stress. The benefit of this measure would be to protect investors and, and reduce their incentive to redeem. However, it would also erode uh, prime fund yields potentially making them uneconomical. Okay, thanks very much, Vanessa. Marina, bringing you in, I'd like to ask you about the situation in Europe. What measures did regulators there put in place in response to the 2008 crisis? Yeah, so in response to the 2008 financial crisis, EU regulators introduced liquidity requirements and, as in the US, they set up liquidity triggers that allow money market fund boards to restrict redemptions. And they also looked again at money market fund structures, didn't they? Yes, that's correct. Regulators 
prevented constant net asset value fund, CNAF funds, to use the acronym, or funds that maintain a stable share price, from investing in credit-sensitive debt. So they restricted the CNAF fund structure to funds investing in government securities. And in parallel, for investment in short-term corporate and financial debt, regulators introduced a new type of fund, the Low Volatility Net Asset Value, or LVNAV fund. An LVNAV is a hybrid fund that can maintain a stable share price as long as its market value NAV doesn't deviate by more than 20 basis points from par. If it deviates, the fund needs to convert to a fluctuating NAV. Okay, but despite these reforms, there was a flight to quality in Europe last March that got regulators worried about systemic risk. Correct. We observed a similar trend as in the US, with US dollar-denominated prime Alvina funds suffering large redemptions and liquidity shortages. Investors sold their prime funds to invest in government money market funds. Euro and selling denominated prime funds did not experience the same selling pressure. They were less affected because of the lack of alternative investments, as there's almost no market for euro and sterling public debt funds. But last point, as in the US, affected funds were reluctant to sell, reduce their liquid assets to cover redemptions. So Marina, what are EU regulators thinking about in terms of further reform? The European authorities, like their US counterparts, are considering decoupling minimum liquidity threshold from withdrawal restrictions. They have other options on the table, including introducing swing pricing or anti-dilution levies. Both would make redemptions more expensive and would eliminate the advantage of withdrawing early. But these measures could reduce the investor's appeal for the product and also would be difficult to implement for intrading funds and stable NAV funds. We also think that uh, regulators in Europe will look again at the Alvina fund model after some Alvina funds market valuations came close to exceeding the maximum 20 basis point collar relative to their amortized NAVs. Marina, I actually have a question about regulators. I think your report also mentioned the Financial Stability Board, right? The global regulator. What is the Financial Stability Board, or FSB, planning to do regarding money market fund reform? Yes, the FSB was founded by the G20 countries, and separately from the European and US regulators, it is conducting its own review of what caused instability in short-term credit markets in 2020. Its review will be completed in July 2021, and the European regulators will probably consider uh, the FSB's findings along with their own findings for the review of money market fund rules in 2022. Marina, Miles, Vanessa, and Svetlana, thank you all very much for your insights, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. To read any of the reports mentioned in this podcast, click the link to this episode at about moody's.io forward slash podcasts. And please tune in again in two weeks on Wednesday, June 2nd for the next episode of Focus on Finance.